Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Nice mild weather today. Um, I want to thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, we are blessed to have uh, such a, a wonderful congregation of people who are here to uh, not only hear the Word of God, but also carry out the Word of God uh, in our communities, in our lives, with our friends, with our families, with everybody that we come into contact with on a daily and weekly basis. This morning we are continuing our sermon series called The Winter of Our Contentment. And we're taking a walk through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And he uh, helped establish this church, the Philippian church in Philippi, with a woman named Lydia about 10 years or so before he uh, wrote this letter. And as he's writing the letter, of course, we might remember that he's sitting in a prison cell. And he spends much of his time, much of this letter, he, he's not complaining about his condition. He's not complaining about his circumstances. He is taking the time to <coughs> he is taking the time to encourage the church. He is taking the time to tell them all of the things that he, he, he reminds them of the things he's taught them before. He talks to them about being content in whatever situation that you find yourself. And this morning, we're going to continue in uh, Philippians. We're going to start in chapter 1, starting in verse 27. We're going to end in chapter 2, uh, verse 16. And I want to encourage you to read along in your Bible or use one of the Pew Bibles or use your Bible app if that is uh, how you uh, read your Bible on a regular basis. Uh, but want you to follow along, and we're going to stop and start as we uh, go along this morning. The theme of this part of Paul's letter is the unity of the church. And of course, he's talking about the church in Philippi, but he's also talking about Christ's universal church. That's us. That's every congregation that's meeting this morning around the world. He is talking about unity in Christ's Church. And we get this theme right away in verse 27 of chapter 1, where Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And the first thing we see Paul saying here, once again, he's encouraging the Philippian church. He wants them to understand that whether he's there with them or whether he is apart from them, that he has the same desire for them. He wants them to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but by living by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by living in unity, the church might become stronger. And Paul says here, there are things going on. 
There are struggles, there are fights, there are things that are happening to me, to you as a church. And the best way, the only way that we can succeed, that we can overcome these struggles is through unity in spirit, unity in mind. So first, Paul encourages the Philippians to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Moises Silva, he is a, a theologian. He wrote a commentary in Philippians, and he expands on this idea by suggesting that when Paul tells the church to be worthy of the gospel of Christ, what he is saying is what really matters is that you behave as citizens of heaven, that you behave as citizens of heaven. The Philippian church existed in a city that was hostile toward Christianity. They were absolutely hostile. They were a, a Roman colony. Many Roman soldiers, once they had finished their service to Rome, would come to Philippi and they would settle down, they would take lands, they would live there. And while they lived there, they brought their manner of worship to Philippi. And the Roman manner of worship was to worship the emperor. They actually deified the emperor of Rome and worshiped him as God. And they physically, sometimes very strongly, physically opposed anybody who would worship in another way. So Christianity, they were really hostile towards Christians because the Christians in Philippi weren't worshiping the emperor. They were worshiping this Jesus. And the Romans were not happy about that, and they opposed them. What Paul is telling the church here in Philippi, and I think what we can say is the church here in East Berlin, is that we are living in enemy territory, spiritually speaking. We're living in enemy territory. And as citizens of heaven, our spiritual weapon is the gospel of Christ. And this spiritual weapon that we talk about, for it to be used effectively, we must stand firm in the spirit. We must stand as one. We must be of one mind, and we must strive side by side. And we talk of this as, as being a, a weapon. And really, it's kind of what Paul is talking about here. Because when he talks about this idea of us striving side by side, the word that he used here is synathleo, Sin means with or beside, like synonym, right? Something that means something similar, something that works side by side. And atleo means athlete. And when Paul speaks of this, synathleo, what he means is he's talking to the Philippians about striving in a contest, in public games, where they're contending for a prize. And the most popular public games in that time were the gladiator games. How many of you have ever seen the movie Gladiator? All right. Little fictional, but a lot of what they did really is, is in the movie is what they did in history. And often gladiators would fight together. And we saw that in the movie, if you've seen it. Uh, the gladiators would be chained 
uh, either by the legs or by the hands or some other way. They would be chained together, and then these wild animals would come out and start attacking them. And, and it wasn't just lions. We usually think about you know Christians being fed to the lions, but they weren't just fed to the lions. They were fed to bears. They were fed to uh, leopards. They were fed to anything that could draw a lot of blood and be really, really messy. And the gladiators would fight these animals. And if they didn't fight together, if they didn't coordinate their movements, if they didn't work with one mind, they would die. They would be obliterated by these animals. But if they worked together, if, as Paul said, they strove together and they moved in tandem with one another and they were able to uh, figure out the animals' movements and they were able to work with one mind, then they might survive to fight another day. And one thing that we don't really think much about is that gladiators did a lot of training so again, and I, I'm referencing the movie because a lot of people have seen it. You saw these training exercises that they would do, and they would fight with each other with these wooden swords, and they would learn how to work together. They would be of one mind. And by all accounts, these gladiators trained as hard, if not harder, than our modern athletes. And we watch our modern athletes, and sometimes we see these documentaries and training films where they're lifting all this weight, and they're running, and they're doing all of this stuff. And they're not even worried about being killed by bears. The gladiators were worried about getting eaten by a bear. So when they would go to these training areas, they had these gladiator schools, they would work together, learn how to use various weapons. They would simulate the fights that they would have in the arenas. So they would actually kind of practice. One of the gladiators would be a bear or a lion and would try to mimic those movements so that the other gladiators could begin to be of one mind, begin to think, okay, if the, if, if the animal does this, what are we gonna do? And they had to drill it into themselves and drill it into themselves until it was almost muscle memory. You guys that are athletes, you know what muscle memory, you just keep practicing the same moves over and over and over again until they, you don't even think about them anymore. They just become second nature. And if we think about this idea of training for a battle or training for an arena where there's gonna be hostile animals or hostile people. We could also think about training as Christians. Think about how much training do we actually do to prepare to strive together to fight spiritual battles? How much training have you done? How much training have I done to be prepared to go up against Satan and the powers of darkness. Paul suggests in Ephesians chapter 6 that we have one offensive weapon against the powers of darkness. And that offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And if that is our only offensive weapon, 
we really need to start training on how to use it. We really need to start figuring out, not only for our own personal lives, reading scripture and, and reading the Bible, which is, which is a great start. We need to start learning how to work together, how to struggle with some of these scriptures, how to be able to figure out what is it that God is trying to say to us, not just in 40 minutes on a Sunday morning, but we really need to start getting together with fellow Christians on a regular basis to sit down and study the scripture, sit down and pray with one another, sit down and be able to train our minds and our hearts to use scripture in a way that's, that it's supposed to be used for. And the problem is, is that historically Christians have used scripture in ways that it was not meant to be used. People have used scriptures to attack people, not to help them to find God. We're really keen on telling people what they're doing wrong, but we're not so good at telling them what God actually wants, what God desires. And when we attack people with the scripture that we're supposed to use, the sword of the spirit, and we use it to cut people, when we use it to attack people, we're losing the battle. We're losing that one thing that God wants more than anything else, and that is reconciliation with him. It's not going to happen if we use the Bible as a method of slashing people. When we use the sword of the Spirit, we're supposed to be using that sword against Satan, against his demons, against the powers of darkness, not against people. And we need to start learning how to do that. And one of the things I'd love to see in 2023, we're getting ready to have our annual meeting today. We're going to talk about all the great things that happened in 2022. And we had some tremendous ministry happening in 2022. But in 2023, what I would love to see is that we would have groups of people in morning hour chapel who would purpose to meet together on a regular basis and read scripture and study scripture and pray for each other and pray for our community and ask God, what exactly can we do to reach those people who are hostile towards God right now? And we know that they're not hostile towards God for any other reasons than either one, Satan is making them hostile or two, we are the way that we use our scripture, the way that we use the Bible. I would love to see some small groups start to develop in 2023. And seriously, if that's something that you're interested in, if it's something you want to talk about, come and talk to me about it. Email me, call me, send me a carrier pigeon. I don't care what you do. But let's talk about it because when we do that, we become more unified in mind, we become more unified in spirit, and we become stronger against the forces of evil. And I think some of you, if not most of you, would agree we need that today. So 
Paul speaks of unity in spirit. He speaks of this striving side by side. And he expounds greatly on these ideas as we move into Philippians chapter 2. So again, he's still talking to the church here, and he still wants to encourage them. And he goes on in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Being of one mind, having the same love. We talk about this idea of being of one accord, and sometimes we don't really know what being of one accord means. It just simply means agreeing about what should be done about whatever it is we're talking about. We're going to talk in here uh, a little bit later about what should be done with the church and the building and the funds that we bring in and the ministries that we do. What should we do? And my prayer is that we are of one accord, that we agree that things need to happen to minister to those outside of the building. But when we agree about these things spiritually, when we come to understand Scripture for what it is, God's instruction for his people, these things, Paul says, will produce encouragement in Christ. We will feel encouraged. How many of you truly feel encouraged when you walk out your door in the morning that the things of God are happening that the Holy Spirit is moving in your place of work or in your place of school or at the grocery store? How many of you are encouraged that that is happening? I'm not often encouraged when I walk out my door. And if you're not encouraged, that's pretty natural. But Paul says if we strive together, if we come in one mind, of Christ, we can be encouraged. Not only can we be encouraged, we can be comforted. We know that there are some battles that are going to be hard fought. We know that there are some spiritual things that are going on in our families, with our friends, in our church. And we can be comforted when we start striving together with one mind and in one spirit. So what do we need to agree on? What do we need to be in one accord about? It's something that I've said over the last several weeks. We need to be in one accord. We need to agree that we need to work through the mission of Christ to share the gospel so that all should come to repentance because that is what God wants. God is not willing that any should die, but that all should come to repentance. And unfortunately, in many churches, the what, that mission, often gets kind of garbled with the how. How are we going to do this? Well, we can't do this. We don't have enough money. We can't do this. We don't have enough people. We don't do this. We're not strong enough spiritually. We don't do this. How, 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 how are we going to do it? And the message of what the mission itself starts to get garbled because then we just start 
trying to figure out how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And guess what? Then people disagree on how we're going to do this or how we're going to do that. And sometimes people leave churches because of how they do something. Sometimes churches split because of how they do something instead of focusing on the what? Instead of focusing on the mission. And we see this happen so, so often. And we look at these things, and I look at things that are written about the church by people who are not churched people, and I see that we are losing the spiritual battle because we don't focus on the what, on the mission. That's why Paul continues in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, what we should be focusing on. That mission can only happen when we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And a lot of times in our society, we have this either or kind of mentality. I can either take care of myself and my family, or I can take care of other people, but I can't do both. I don't have the time, I don't have the money, I don't have the resources, I don't have the energy, I don't have whatever it is. Church, we have Christ. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We ought to be able to take care of both our interests and the interests of others. And Paul also says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Paul knew in the Philippian church that there were some divisions. We're going to learn about what those divisions are a little bit later when we get further into the book. But part of his reason for writing the letter is to address those issues. And he's talking about selfish ambition. Doing things for ourselves instead of for the mission of Christ. This passage gives us the reasons why churches split or destroy themselves. Selfish ambition. Conceit. Focusing on ourselves instead of focusing on Jesus Christ. Pastors focus more on being popular and being liked than they do about preaching the truth of the gospel. Church boards focus more on bringing money into the church coffers to build bigger buildings than they worry about building disciples. Church members focus more on having power over what the church does than they focus on the power of the Holy Spirit. And I am thankful I am so thankful to say that I have never seen any of those things here. But they happen. And it's so easy when we start becoming self-absorbed. And I'm not just talking about individually. If this church became so self-absorbed that the only thing they did were ministries for the people that come into the door, people, ministries for people that are members, we're going to die. We're going to destroy ourselves because then we're focusing on the how to do these things and not the what, which is 
has almost nothing to do with what we're sitting here doing today. Yes, we need to come. We need to worship together. We need to strengthen ourselves. But Sunday morning should be a training ground. Sunday morning should be a time where we seek the power of the Holy Spirit so that when we walk out the door, we start being Christians. We start sharing the gospel. We start looking at people as people who God wants to save. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Selfish ambition and conceit are what destroy congregations. They keep us from the mission of the gospel. But Paul, thankfully, in his letter, offers the church a solution. And really, it's the only solution. And we're going to read about this starting in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What is the cure for selfish ambition and conceit? The humility of Jesus Christ. And not just this self-deprecating brand of humility that we sometimes use to pretend like we're humble. You know, like when somebody comes up and compliments you on something that you've done, and you downplay your abilities or your worth. Oh, no, it really wasn't that good. Oh, I could do so much better. Oh, well, this was, you know, the first time that I ever did this before, so don't be too hard on me. We use that as false humility. We downplay our worth. Jesus knew his worth. Jesus knew his abilities. Jesus healed the sick. He fed thousands and thousands of people. He walked on water. And at no point, at least that I've read in the Gospels, the many times that I've read them, have we seen Jesus say, oh, shucks, it was nothing. No. The humility that Jesus practiced was, this is the power given to me by the Father. I can do nothing without that power. The humility that Jesus practiced here was a self-emptying humility that has at its core the Father, the Holy Spirit, and other people. Jesus emptied himself of the heavenly glory of being the Son of God. And if you want to have a meditation time, meditate on that sometime. Think about what it actually means for Jesus to empty himself of all of his heavenly glory, to be born in the form of a man. Think about what that means. But even though he was emptied of the glory of heaven, Jesus knew his mission. He knew what he was on earth to do. He became the servant of the Father, and he became the servant of mankind. 
And when we read the Gospels, we see all of the things that Jesus did through the power of God. And we've never seen him do anything out of service to himself. Nothing. Every action Jesus took, whether it was healing the sick or turning water into wine or raising a widow's son from the dead, was in service to God and to the people around him. It was not for himself. It was not for him to be seen. Oftentimes, Jesus would tell people after he healed them, don't tell anybody about this. Of course, it never worked. And people told everybody about what Jesus did. And then all of a sudden, we've got thousands and thousands of people following Jesus around all over the place. But Jesus was not looking for his own glory. He was looking for the glory of the Father. In John 13, Jesus performs an incredibly humbling task. He washes the feet of his disciples. This was a task that was reserved for the very lowest of the low of the servant of whatever house you went into. Usually that person was being punished. They were in trouble. You go wash their feet. That's what happened in that time. And if we read in John chapter 13, starting in verse 12, we can see when he had washed their feet, when he had lowered himself to this most disgusting task imaginable. He put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than him who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And this isn't about Jesus bragging. Hey, I'm your Lord. I'm your teacher. You got to do what I say. That's not Jesus's attitude here. He says, you're right. I am your Lord. I am your teacher. I'm a rabbi. Rabbis would choose the people that they would teach. So yeah, I know. I chose you. All 12 of you. That's not the point here. The lesson that Jesus was teaching is that every one of his disciples should be focused on others rather than themselves because Jesus was focused on others rather than himself. He emptied himself. We should be willing to empty ourselves. That's what Paul is saying. We should be willing to humble ourselves to the point of death. There should be nothing greater in our minds and in our hearts than winning souls for Jesus Christ, than pointing people towards God the Father. And you know what? If that means I have to die to do it, that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Nobody said Christianity was supposed to be easy. Although throughout history, we've really found some ways to make it that way. Jesus calls us to die for the mission. 
just like a soldier, just like a gladiator in the games. I don't know many Christians who think about the possibility of dying for the sake of the gospel. I certainly don't think about it on a regular basis, or at least I haven't until I started reading through Philippians again. Most Christians who live in the United States have not been called to die for the gospel. Yet. But I think we need to be ready if and when that time comes. Because we're going to have a decision to make. Are we going to stand up for Jesus Christ? Or are we going to kneel before evil? Those are the choices that we have. And I think that the very first thing we ought to be doing is to get training. We need to learn how to fight the forces of evil. We need to learn how to fight Satan and his minions. All of those things that work against the will of God. We need to put away our selfish ambition and conceit. We need to focus on the mission of the gospel. And if that means maybe taking a little bit less time for TV or a little bit less time for vacations or a little bit less time for whatever it is that we would rather be doing, we need to start doing those things because the time is coming, folks. I have no doubt about it. The time is coming when we are going to be forced to make a decision. We are. If we learn to start wielding the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, against our spiritual foe, we'll be able to stand up for Jesus Christ when the time comes. If we empty ourselves and become servants to all other people, all other people, it doesn't matter their race, it doesn't matter their nationality, it doesn't matter if they've done something bad to us, it doesn't matter who they are. Are we going to empty ourselves and consider their salvation more important than our physical safety. And we need to be willing to wash each other's feet. We need to be willing to do the things that nobody else wants to do. Whatever that is. Whatever God calls us to do. We need to be able to do it with joy. We need to be able to do it in a way that pleases God. Paul finishes this passage by talking about Jesus Christ. He says, because Jesus has emptied himself, because he has humbled himself, because he became a servant to all mankind, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, so that and that and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We know that we will all kneel down and we will confess that Jesus is Lord. And guess what? 
We're going to do that whether we know him or not. Whether we have come to repentance or not. Let us be a church that cares whether people will kneel before Jesus having known him or whether they will kneel before Jesus in preparation to be separated from God. Let us focus on that mission. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this congregation, this gathering. We thank you for allowing us to read your word, to hear your word, to sing praise to you. Father, we thank you that your hedge of protection has been over us for so long. Father, we ask that you would work through the Holy Spirit that is living within us to find that humility, to find that ability to empty ourselves and to focus on your mission so that all might come to repentance. Help us to care more about the people outside of this church than the people that are in it. Help us to minister to those people who have physical needs, have emotional needs, and most of all, have spiritual need to know you. Father, we thank you. We ask that you would give us strength, give us courage. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you spend time with God this week in scripture reading and prayer, Pray to him. Ask him to reveal to you someone who he loves, someone who he would see come to repentance, and ask him what you can do to point the way towards the Father. God bless you this week. Mm -hmm.